Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Well, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth podcast, a podcast primarily for age 55 plus dentists, but actually very helpful for dental practitioners of all ages. I'm pleased to have with me again today, Brian Hanks, who has a business, uh, Dental Buyer Advocates, and he assists uh, dental practice buyers. And and Brian, we're uh, happy to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, you've written uh, you've written some books, and I, you know, one was written primarily for buyers some time ago, and you just came out with a new book. Can you tell us about your publications? Yeah, no problem. Uh, they're both very uncreatively titled, but they're easy to remember. The the one, the first that was published about four years ago, is called "How to Buy a Dental Practice." And that is <laughs> aimed at uh, buyers, right? And uh, I wrote that when I was working as a uh, dental CPA and financial advisor, uh, helping these young dentists buy practices. And I got asked the same questions over and over. So I, I'm lazy, right? So I, I would write blog posts so I could just send them a link rather than get on a half an hour phone call. And eventually that turned into a book and uh, that book turned into a business. And um, so now I've been doing dental transitions, helping buyers for years and years. And then uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, with a, a close friend of mine who is uh, who primarily helps sellers, we just uh, published a book called "Selling Your Dental Practice," and uh, both are available on Amazon. And um, I welcome any and all feedback and what we can include to make them even better. But yeah, both those resources are out there for folks. Wow, that's fantastic! I'm excited to to get a copy of those and read them. Well, our topic on this episode today is what makes a good buyer of a dental practice? So let's start off with our first question. How would a seller know if a buyer is a good fit or not? Yeah, the, it, this is a, a really good question. That's going to be have a slightly different answer for every dentist. But with that caveat, let's, let's just make some assumptions here, Bob, with the answer. And let's, let's assume that the seller cares a little bit about whom they sell the practice to. And uh, with that assumption out of the way, it's a pretty easy answer. You wanna find a, a, a quote unquote good buyer is defined as someone that you're proud to sell your business to and can pay for it. Pretty simple, right? So th those yep, two things, you can go a little, little deeper, of course, on those two things. And, and I like to tell people, um, let, let's you know, think first fit fit first payment second right because if even if you find somebody you can pay for your practice you don't like them or they're going to totally change the 
you know, how you've practiced and the reputation you've built and the legacy you want to leave and all those things, who cares, right? So I think fit is first and, uh, and, and fit isn't too hard to define. I, you know, chat with uh, somebody, talk clinical focus, talk treatment philosophy, talk about uh, maybe a, a situation you saw and, and what you decided to do, ask them, um, you know, where they like to, what types of procedures they do and don't like to do. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I, you're, I don't know your experience, Bob, I have found you get two dentists uh, on a phone call around a table, whatever it is, they can within five, 10 minutes, pretty quickly assess whether or not they have a, you know, not nobody has to be identical, but similar enough treatment philosophy and style of dentistry uh, to be a good fit for each other. Have you found that to be true? Yes, I think that the practitioners can get warmed up pretty quickly with each other. You know, when we have uh, buyers visit uh, seller's offices and when the sellers are there and they're going to meet the seller, we normally start by a tour of the practice and it's just kind of an opportunity for them to kind of get warmed up to each other personally a little bit. And we try not to get trapped in an operatory or the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the lab or any place, you know, having a deep dive conversation into anything, we try to make our way back to wherever we're going to sit down and talk about things in general. And we never discuss uh, negotiable items. We don't. We never discuss money. But that's where the the buyer has an opportunity to share information with the seller about themselves. They can ask the seller questions. The seller can ask them questions, and and I think that's a really good way to go. The uh, the one thing that I find interesting where somebody might think of they need to find somebody with the exact same procedures that they do to be a good fit i don't necessarily think that that's the case because there's something what we call the uh, what i call the procedure gap so you know there could be a buyer that has a, a, a wider skill set or does more procedures than the seller and actually that's a big plus for a buyer and then you know if a buyer has fewer uh does fewer procedures than the seller then you know that practice may not be worth quite as much to that particular buyer. What do you think about that? Absolutely, yeah. And and um, one of the I um, say that buyers need five things to be able to pay for your practice. Okay, and and one of those five is uh, a production history that shows that the buyer can do two things: about eighty percent of whatever a seller can do. Right. Nobody expects a, uh, a younger kind of, um, you know, let's call them two, three, five years out of dental school dentist to be able to match the speed and breadth of a, a, a practitioner who's been doing something 30 years. But they got to get close, right? They got to be able to do about 80%. That's the general rule of thumb for banks. Banks will pull a production report from the buyer. They'll look at the seller's production report and they'll line them up and say, all right, the seller's doing about, uh, you know, 750 a year in their own production, not hygiene, doctor production. And uh, as long as the buyer can show they could do about 600, the banks generally say, all right, yep, this buyer can probably pretty quickly uh, keep up with or get to a point that the seller is at. And, and then to your point, the other piece of the puzzle, the second thing in terms of production is they need to be able to show that they can do all, or at least most, if not all of the big money-making procedures in the practice, right? If that seller does 300 implants a year and the buyer's never taken an implant course, forget about it even if they can do 80% of the production, right? So um, anyway, I agree with you. We can talk about what, other, what else buyers need, but on the production side, 100% agree. 
Well, it's a pretty big step for buyers moving forward with a practice purchase, especially their first one. So what do they need to do to get ready to purchase? Okay, so let's, yeah, so I mentioned five, and, and we'll go most difficult to least difficult. And, and we mentioned the most difficult. It's a production history that gets close to the seller. And, um, you know, arguably I could say number two is just as difficult, if not maybe more for some buyers, and that they need some cash. All right, so cash. What do I mean cash? The general rule of thumb has been for years the lesser of 10% of the sales price of the practice or $50,000. And it, it, so quick math, you're selling your practice for $400,000. The buyer needs to have 10% or 50,000, the lesser of those two numbers, they, you know, 40,000 is less than 50. So if the buyer can show they have $40,000 cash, generally the banks say thumbs up, we will approve this loan. So seller selling the practice for a million dollars, as long as the buyer has 50,000 cash, um, that they, that buyer generally is getting approved for a bank loan. Now, but Bob, I know you're squirming a little bit, and I am too with that general rule of thumb because post-COVID, that rule has gotten a little more strict. You know, they, the banks yeah. are saying, yeah, we'd like to see maybe 75, 80. Uh, do you have $100,000? But I expect that that will relax a little bit as time goes on, although I could be wrong. Um, now, does and a lot of sellers at this point say, is, is the buyer, is that a down payment? Are they handing the cash to someone? And the interesting answer to that is no. The buyer just needs to show that they have the cash, right? It needs to be liquid. It can't be in a retirement account. It has to be checking savings or maybe a taxable brokerage account. But at the closing table, the bank's not going to ask for the money. They just want to see that the money's there. So A, they can see whether or not this is a buyer that spends everything that they get. And B, that they could handle a, a, a pretty serious shutdown like the whole dental industry experience with COVID. Uh, so that's that's cash. The other three, super easy. Uh, well, generally super easy. Um, banks generally won't lend to a dentist right out of dental school. You need to have about a year's worth of experience. That's not hard and fast, but that's about, it's pretty close <laughs> to hard and fast. And then the last two things are the easiest and almost never a problem for dentists need to have a clean credit history, meaning no bankruptcies or short sales, and you need to have a credit score over 680. And uh, almost never is that an issue. Um, although I'm sure, Bob, you've got some stories. Well, you know, we try to screen candidates early on when we can, uh, and so that we're not exposing sellers' confidential practice information to, to people who can't move forward with the deal. So that's one of our first questions is about being pre-approved with a lender and, uh, you know, the liquidity uh, subject that you brought up, Brian, I was the moderator for a podcast sponsored by International Business Brokers Association last year. And I had some of the top um, uh, individuals, uh, CEOs and so on with the uh, major dental lenders in the country as the panelist on that uh, webinar. And I remember that Bill Murray, who was with uh, Lendever now provide uh, he's since gone over back to Bank of America, but he indicated that at that time that Lendever uh, was going from 3% liquidity up to a 10% liquidity requirement. And I think that that's fairly common, that 10% now. So it, as you said, perhaps that will will moderate now that we're post-pandemic, but every 
you know, a lot of lenders got nervous during that time and did some unique things. So we'll see where the dust settles. What common mistakes do you see buyers making that kills deals? Okay. Um, I see a couple. One mistake that buyers frequently make is they treat the purchase of a, of a business, of a dental practice, like buying a pair of jeans or buying a, a phone, right? They treat it as a transaction. And I, again, I have some sympathy for the mentality here. It's very likely that this is the largest purchase that that individual will ever make in their entire life. And so understandably, there is a desire to not get taken advantage of, to maybe get a deal or to feel like, you know, you negotiated with someone. And uh, I, I call this, again, might be appropriate. Hey, maybe Bob really overvalued that practice. So let's talk about it. Unlikely, but, <laughs> you know, possible. Um, oh, never happens. Right, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, but I get a lot of buyers who come to the table assuming that they must negotiate the price. And I got to tell you, that is not the way that most sellers are coming to the table and thinking. I don't think a lot of sellers, and tell me if, if I'm wrong here, Bob, you have more experience on the sell side, but I don't think a lot of sellers come to the table saying, well, I'd really like to sell for 700, but I know that I'm going to, they're going to negotiate with me. So let's offer at 750, you know, and, and Hey, if I get 750, great, but I really, the really, the real price I want is 750 or 700. No, I, I, my experience with sellers is they have a price that they feel is fair. Maybe they had some help putting that price together or not, but a lot of times uh, the buyer is just killing the goodwill saying, Hey, you know, now, not seven fifty. I'll give you a six fifty. And it's um, what the buyers are doing is they're forgetting that they're buying an income stream, right? They're, you're not buying uh, something and, and then you're going to sell it later. The real money in dentistry isn't made by buying and selling dental practices. The real money in dentistry is owning an asset, putting money in your pocket year after year. That income stream is the most important piece. So that's the first thing buyers do. The second thing buyers do is they either get bad advice or they'd get no advice. And it's a little bit of a self-serving comment given the fact that I help buyers, but uh, I see way too many buyers have, a, they have a question, they're looking at a practice, maybe they're negotiating a letter of intent and they, <laughs> they go hop on some Facebook group or they're on dental town or they're, you know, they're talking to their buddy on the golf course. And um, listen, I mean, there's some, some good advice that takes place in some of those forums, but there is an awful lot of bad advice. And, uh, and sometimes they're hiring the advisors that are, you know, that are prominent in those places that spend, you know, 18 or 20 hours a week posting in online forums. And, uh, you know, they're, they're thinking those advisors are the right ones to help them out, which, you know, could be true, but sometimes isn't. And they're getting bad advice from those folks. So, um, you know, that, those are the two main mistakes that I see, Bob. I'd be curious if you'd add to that list, but, um, from my perspective, those are the two. Oh yeah. You know, the, uh, the first item that buyers come in thinking that, you know, it's going to be a negotiating free for all and that they've just been watching the prices right on TV and this is how you go about it is the opposite of the way that we work because we work very hard to build a strong foundation under the listing price and we don't overinflate the price. We show exactly where all the numbers came from and we feel that that's really what the number ought to be. It's the number is never inflated ever. And I try to 
help buyers understand that this is the price and we can support it and support it well. And there are several ways we do that. And if you're not interested at that price, that's fine. But you know, this is not a price is right scenario. And as far as your second point about bad advice or no advice, I had one recent example where we do sell uh, a number of practices for uh, a significant percent of collections. That's not how we value them, but that's where they end up. And I think they're valued fairly, but we had one listed in a uh, north central community, north central Ohio community recently, a very beautiful practice uh, and uh, didn't have all the technology uh four operatories, very clean office, uh, good numbers in the community as far as population to practitioner ratio. So good opportunities for the future, but we don't price based on opportunity. We price on, on what the practice did. And our our number came in actually around 65% of collections. And the CPA for the buyer said, well, I talked to so-and-so and practices sell for 62% of collections and they wouldn't budge uh, they only offered about 50% of collections with an earnout for the remaining amount. And that deal completely fell apart because yep. the buyer got bad advice. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I see that. Uh, I, you know, I, I got to say, I see it from CPAs. I see it from a lot of lawyers. I was on a call with a lawyer today who's grilling me on numbers. I, I just stopped the guy and said, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, what, what is your role here? And uh, I get the advice, you know, the desire to help your client. But um, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, we've. I'm sure every broker and uh, you know on my side of the deal, or you and representing buyers has have a lot of stories to share. Uh, you know, we've we've worked with attorneys that have been fantastic to work with, and and other attorneys that had, you know, they uh, they they basically killed the deal as well. So, you know, it, it's it's very important, extremely important for buyers to work with somebody who's knowledgeable and dental practice transitions. And, and that's quite frankly, one reason that I ask you to be on the podcast, Brian, because I, I admire what you do. And I think you're a tremendous resource for buyers. So if there are any sellers listening to this that uh, are connected with buyers and want to have a good experience with them, uh, th they would do well to send them your way. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, when a buyer is getting ready to negotiate on a deal, um, we talked about what they need to be ready for and what what can be done to help set a buyer up for success in a transition because it's not just everything that goes on in advance of the closing what can be done in advance of the closing that's going to help them be successful after the closing a couple things come to mind that are frequent pain points with buyers uh, one would be the timing of the transition I would say as a general rule of thumb, sellers have more flexibility on timing than buyers do. That's not always true, but buyers, you know, they're usually working as an associate somewhere. They've got to give 60, 90, 120 days notice. And, you know, they are under the gun with those pile of student loans and they can't take a big long break in the middle of, you know, just to kind of watch the transition come through. So if a seller can be flexible on timing, that can absolutely help the transition and set them up for success. And um, I've got uh, somewhat of a, a controversy. I don't know if it's super confident, confident or, um, um, you know, the, kind of a, a point that I disagree with some brokers on is I, I tell sellers one of the best things you can do to set 
a buyer up for success and set your own practice, your patients, your staff up for success is to not be secretive about the fact that you're going to sell your practice. Now, you don't need to go shout from the rooftops and you don't need to get past your tax returns around to everybody and their dog. But uh, your patients aren't dumb and your staff's not dumb. They can see the gray hair on your head and they know you're not going to practice forever. And as if you go to your staff, I don't know, three, two, one full year in advance of, of selling your practice, say, hey, this is something I'm thinking about. If sometime in the next year or three, I get a buyer that's interested, um, I may you know, bring them in and uh, let you guys talk to them and have you tell me what you think. And, and um, you know, striking a balance between confidentiality and setting that buyer up for success. And, and what I mean by setting a buyer up for success specifically in this case and not being secretive is if you think about what a buyer is actually purchasing with a dental practice, very little of it is tangible, physical, right? The supplies, the equipment, um, you know, the paintings on the wall, those things. What they're really buying is the goodwill of the practice. And goodwill is just a fancy accounting word that means, you know, the, the relationships that patients have to your office, the location, their habits. And, and a big piece of that goodwill is tied up in the relationships and the knowledge in your staff's head. And so uh, to tell a buyer I want you to pay a million dollars plus for my business, uh, but I'm not going to tell the staff and they're not going to know until I get that million plus in my checking account, then I'll let them know. And at that point, you can start to assess whether or not the hygienists are any good, whether or not the, the front desk are, are trained well, whether or not you're going to get along with these people. Gosh, that is a tough pill for a buyer to swallow. And, and a lot of them are swallowing it these days. And I'd like to see that change. Uh, so that's, you know, maybe a controversial point a little bit. Um, and, and you have to be very careful about how you approach that. But I, I think if you really do care about the legacy of your practice, uh, you know, involving the staff in your transition decisions somewhat carefully can be a good thing. Well, I appreciate you sharing that point. And I think, I do share the same information with uh, practice sellers when I meet with them. Now, many of them choose not to let their staff know till later, but uh, we suggest they give strong consideration to letting their staff know about the sale no later than when an LOI gets signed. Mm, and, yeah, good uh, compromise. You know, the school of thought, of course, is that if somebody was ready to leave, they're going to leave they leave at that time, there may be an opportunity to replace them before the buyer comes on. And if they're, you know, if they're not ready to leave, they're probably not going to leave. I mean, many of them need the jobs. They may feel empowered by having an opportunity to weigh in on who the seller is and meeting the seller in advance. And just as you stated, the buyers are buying an income stream and that income stream is tied to patient retention. The patients don't know the buyer, but they know the staff, and the staff is key to maximizing patient retention. So it seems to be reasonable to do everything possible to have uh, the best relationship with the staff that you can have as early as, as you can do that. I agree. I, so, you know, think, think about the message you're telling a, a buyer by saying, I don't trust my staff enough to let them know about this major event in their lives, right? They're going to get a new boss. <laughs> this is a big deal. Now you and I and the, the seller, and we all know 
that the staff all have a job and they're going to get paid the same, but they don't know that. And that fear is real. And those first few weeks for the buyer, man, that could be rough. If, uh, if, and, and the buyer's thinking to themselves, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me the staff's awesome, but you don't trust them? Anyway, yeah, hmm. that's, that's a little bit of a high horse for me, but uh, I'll, I'll get off of it and, and let you finish. Okay. Well, our very last question is the minute to close up here, Brian, is where can, uh, what direction should a buyer be pointed in to make sure that they're well-informed and getting accurate information? Obviously, connecting with you mm-hmm. is one important one important thing, but there are uh, other advisors involved in the, in the process. So maybe you could just uh, briefly touch on that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, self-serving the book, I think, is a good resource. They don't need to talk to me, you know, but the book is, I, it's not salesy. I tried to make it as informative as possible, but if that doesn't work, um, if you're a seller talking with a buyer, you know, maybe it's someone you know, or uh, a kid of yours or something. Anyway, um, dental specific are the keys here, right? Dental specific banker, dental specific lawyer. And, and I would go even deeper than dental specific. I'd say transition specific. Now, banker by definition is transition specific, but not all lawyers are. And certainly not all CPAs. And you told the story about a CPA who just dabbles and frankly didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Sorry for my language. Um, so, you know, I would just make sure that the buyer is talking to someone who deals in transitions frequently and often. And um, by frequently and often, not a couple times a year. Like, this is what they do for a living. And it, what, who knows better than the, the dentist, the value of specialization, right? So make sure the buyer you're talking with is working with a team who specializes in transitions and you should be okay. Great. Brian, thanks so much for sharing on this episode. And could you share some information about the additional resource that any listener could could access here and then also share your contact information as we finish up? Oh, thanks. Yeah. So folks, uh, if they're interested, if they'd like to get a free copy of that book for buyers, uh, they're welcome to go to Dental Buyer Advocates, uh, plural, dentalbuyeradvocates.com forward slash book. Uh, you can get the, you can get a free copy there. It's, um, I think you pay, it's an author copy, so you pay printing and shipping, but it's cheaper than if you go out to Amazon and pay the 20 bucks. Uh, but it, you know, that, that's one way to go. And if you just have a question for me, you're welcome to reach out. Brian with an I, B-R-I-A-N at dentalbuyeradvocates.com. And uh, my personal number is 801-304-3302. Okay. Thanks, Brian. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Bob.